Hey, people! What's going on? I hope you're having a good holiday break. Maybe your break already started. Maybe you're done with finals. Maybe you only have to work one or two more days and then you take off and enjoy it with the fam. You know, enjoy Christmas with the fam. Or maybe you're just going to sit at home in your apartment by yourself. And if that's what you want to do, then good on you, man or woman. Good on you. But I'm going to travel, you know. I'm going to get out there on on those four wheels and hit the open road and probably get a wreck because it's going to be icy and stormy. But that's okay, you know. That's the risk we take to spend time with our families. We risk hitting another car with our car and driving over a cliff and dying. That's a risk we take. And it's fine. It is what it is, you know. So welcome to the show. My name's Brendan. This is the State of the Universe. Two weeks ago, I uploaded an episode. It was episode 19. It featured Nate Stewart, who is an expert on all things spaceflight. But he is a historian, if you will. Maybe not even historians, right? What's the word for someone who understands something really well to the point where they can predict the future? A mystic? Is that the word? He's a spaceflight mystic. Let's say that. And at the end of episode 19, we talked about where spaceflight will go in the next, I don't know, 50 to 70 years. We talked about commercializing space. We talked about space commerce and space tourism. And then I got some messages that said, you guys should do an entire show on that topic. And so that's what this is. I brought Nate back in. We sat down for another hour and a half. And this time we talk the entire time about how spaceflight will look in 50 to 60 years. How spaceflight commerce will look. How private spaceflight will happen. How spaceflight tourism will work. And all those sorts of topics. It's a fantastic conversation. I hope that you enjoy it. I thank you for tuning in. Okay, You can follow the show anywhere you would like to watch it. Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. It's everywhere. YouTube even. I tell you what, we're getting the studio set up. I'm getting this new studio area set up so that we can start doing some actual good quality YouTube videos, not just audio uploaded to YouTube. No one wants to see that, right? And that's why the YouTube channel only accounts for about 1% of views right now. But we're going to change that. We're going to set the studio up. We're going to get good cameras and everything. We already have them. We're going to get this thing going on YouTube and get the subscribers up and get the views up on there because we have to start paying attention to that. I thank you for tuning in. Thank you to the patrons. You got the patrons of the month, Brenda and Richard. Supporting the show in the graduate student tier. Go on patreon.com slash the state of the universe. You can donate. Get different benefits. I thank them. They help support the show. You know, I get paid. I'm a graduate student right now. I get paid about six peanuts. One of those peanuts gets devoted to this. At the end of the month, I have about five peanuts. So that's just how it is, you know? That's the life I live. So I hope that you can go on there, patreon.com slash the state of the universe, give a dollar, give two, give 50 cents. I don't care. Just do what you do and do it good. Thank you for listening. Listen, man, seriously, I talk to a lot of people in the spaceflight community, like a lot of people. Obviously, I work in it myself. I don't, I, don't, I don't do space flight. I'm not an astronaut. I don't know astronauts. You do. I don't. But one of the things 
that everyone in this community, whether they're observers, whether they're theorists, whether they study exoplanets, it doesn't matter. They are all excited about the coming space age because there has been more interest, I think, at least that I've noticed, in spaceflight since I've been alive, since at least 1995. I can't speak before 1995 because I just don't know. But by all accounts, this is the most exciting time in space flight since maybe even the 70s. I don't know. Is that yeah. the vibe you get at NASA? Oh, yeah. I, I would say this is probably the most exciting time in space flight since the Apollo era. I feel like it almost feels like there's this renaissance where we have all this stuff sort of coming together at once. And we have all this public support suddenly sort of out of nowhere that we haven't really had, uh, especially like 10 years ago. I mean, when they stopped uh, flying shuttle flights, a lot of people thought NASA got defunded and NASA wasn't around anymore. <laughs> so it's, it's really interesting that in less than 10 years, we've completely flipped that around. And I can't tell you how many people I see wearing NASA T-shirts or having like NASA bumper stickers or something like that. It's, yeah. I mean, It's funny incredible. you bring that up because I, I actually was thinking about this the other day. NASA is the only governmental body that I can think of in the history of forever that sells merchandise and actually probably makes profit yeah. on it. I don't see anyone yeah. walking around with like Department of the Interior shirts. Well, I mean, I guess there is national parks. I guess are they the ones that handle that? I don't know who does Yeah, that. well, I think a lot of national park shirts you see are like private well, all right, that actually know. begs the question. is Does NASA actually sell the merchandise? That's actually a good question. Um, so I know Space Center in Houston is not actually owned by NASA. I know it's a private company. I'm a, you know They have to lease the image or somehow there's got to be some legality there, but I don't know if NASA actually makes a profit on that. I would be surprised if they did because yeah. it's I a also, government agency. I also don't know what the legality is there because I know if you go on nasa.gov, all of their images, whether it be images from space flights, whether it be images from launches or videos or whatever, that's all public domain. I use a lot yeah. of their a lot of their photos on my websites and on my artwork because well, it's, and it's public domain because you paid for it. I mean, it's it's funded through taxpayer money. So yeah, all right, but let's get let's. So why do you think it is like? What's the reason oh. that people are so interested in? In this renaissance you talk about, what is it that's driving the interest? I think it's a couple of things. I think it's that we're finally pushing ahead. Um, you know, there's all this talk about Mars, and even though that isn't the next step right now, that's still the end goal, and people are excited about that. We want to go back to the moon, something we haven't done in 50 years. Uh, and then, of course, there's commercial crew and commercial entities getting into the space game. There's SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, all these companies that do so much better promotion than NASA. I mean, NASA doesn't, is, we're, we don't promote ourselves. We're not good at that, and it's not what we're supposed to do. But SpaceX, I mean, Elon Musk, come on, he launched the Falcon Heavy rocket, which was the most powerful rocket at the time. Uh, it still is, I believe. And, you know, they had the video of the, the two first stage boosters landing simultaneously, and then a Tesla in space playing David Bowie. Like, that it is just promotional seems, gold. Oh, it's, it is. Well, I think on NASA's part, their goal isn't to be profitable and make money. 
Exactly. Right? Yeah. So and we don't. So we don't care about that. Yeah. It's not what we do it for. Whereas but Elon the, the Musk, private companies are, are able to do that. They can pay marketing people to do that and spread the word and spread the message and get think, people excited. Do you think it'd be good for NASA to do stuff like that, just to raise public awareness and make people think more about science funding by doing cool little uh, stuff like that? That's that's an interesting issue. Um, I think what we do right now is all that we should do. Um, it's all there, you know. We don't shove it in your face. You might have to look for it a little bit, but it's all there. We have public affairs offices at every center. Um, we stream basically everything on NASA TV, uh, which you can stream anytime on YouTube. Uh, I think if we spent any more time and effort and money on it, people would get angry, people in the agency and, and taxpayers in general, and say, why are you spending so much money marketing this? You know, you're a government agency. Go out and do what you're supposed to do. That's true. So that's true. I, think, I think we're at a good level. Yeah. And I, I, also, I would say, you know, Tesla's shipping Tesla's into space is much more effective in terms of marketing than NASA TV. Because, oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. most people who tune into NASA TV are going to be people that support NASA anyway. People who are, you know, in the community or people who are at least. If you ask a random person off the street if they've ever heard of NASA TV, they're going to say no. Yeah, and if you ask most people if they've heard of Elon Musk sending a Tesla into space, most people saw that in the news. Yeah. It was it was amazing. And when you see those videos of what are those rockets that that land after they have launched? The Falcon, the Falcon 9. When you see video of those things landing, it looks like sci-fi. It doesn't even look <laughs> real. Yeah. Like people are doubting the moon landing and here's something that looks so <laughs> sci-fi. It's unbelievable. But it's really cool. And why do you think that we have... One second, there's a helicopter. You know what? These helicopters need to show me respect. They need to show... I need to radio into the tower and tell them, get the damn helicopters out of my f airspace. What is this? <laughs> is this Iraq? What are we doing here, Actually, people? I, I could hear that. <laughs> what are we doing here? Where are we at? Are we in Iran? Is there terror terrorists nearby? I heard Donald Trump say the other day in a press conference, he said, I'll use this time where there's a goddamn, what is there, a fleet of helicopters above me? What is there, a launch, a space launch? Where do I live? Anyway. Turns out there's some FBI criminal on the loose. Yeah, I don't know. They're trying to break into your house. Yeah, well, let them, because this is distracting. God, no respect. No respect in this goddamn world, I, I tell you what. But... Why? Now, what was the question I was even about to ask you? Because this damn helicopter interrupted everything I ever wanted to do with my life. Uh, we were talking about commercialization and marketing and these companies. It sounded like you were going to ask why we have all these companies, but I'm not sure if that's what you were Oh, I, what I was going to ask is the goal of NASA is, in essence, different than the goal of these private companies. Yes. Because NASA's goal is pure exploration. And I imagine exploration, yeah. a lot of these companies, while they have that on their mind, I don't think they're doing it no, the, purely the for the good of science. The companies do it for profit. The companies do it because essentially right now NASA is their biggest customer and their contractor. And NASA will pay them to fly their astronauts and pay them to fly their payloads and these science experiments that they have to put up. So uh, NASA the, does it. Is the goal NASA eventually for, to uh, is the goal eventually to have uh, you know, do you think for these companies to have sort of a space commerce yep. to set up, you know, a, yep. 
so right now the, the big push is to commercialize low Earth orbit. And so we've done that great with telecommunications companies. Most of the, I think it's like 50% of the space commerce uh, economy is, is telecommunication satellites that we put up, whether through NASA or, or um, I guess NASA sponsored, NASA paid launches in the beginning, but now a lot of it's SpaceX, ULA um, launches a lot of that stuff. And, the, and these are for cell phones, GPSs, these sorts of things? Yeah. Your direct TV, all that sort of stuff, yeah. And those stay above the same point on the Earth, don't they? Is yeah, that how they the geostationary, geostationary orbits? Yeah, I believe most of them are. I don't know if all of them are. Yeah, that is, is really cool. Now, if you're going to commercialize low Earth orbit, or Earth, or Earth, or Earth, or Earth, just say just say Leo. Earth. Oh, Leo, that's clever. Leo. If you're yeah. going to commercialize, if you're going to commercialize Leo, which that makes him sound like a prostitute, but if you're going to commercialize Leo, um, I was thinking about God. Why do I say anything? I can't even think. Today's been rough for me. So rough for me this week. I feel like a prostitute, and my brain power is just being given to everyone for free. I don't even make money on this shit. <laughs> anyway, if we're going to commercialize Leo, don't you think we have to clean up? Is there efforts to clean up Leo? Because it's well, a dirty place right now. There's a lot of efforts to track everything. Everything larger than 10 centimeters, uh, we track, and we know its position. Smaller than 10 centimeters... Um, According to to the government, we can't track. I would guess we can probably track down to like five centimeters or lower. Um, but but legally, you know, speaking, I guess it's only it's ten centimeters. But the small stuff's dangerous too, right? Yeah, I, I mean, mean it's, it's most of it's small. At incredible speed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, seventeen thousand five hundred miles per hour. Even even something that's a gram is going to do intense damage. Um, but cleaning it up is a problem because there's right now there's no incentive, no profit incentive. Uh, so it is it is a bit of a problem, and as long as we keep it where we're at, we don't have to necessarily clean it up. We don't have to really think about that right now. The main thing is prevention. So a lot of the older satellites, when they launched, they had just enough fuel to finish their mission, and then they just stay in the orbit. Mm -hmm. And so those satellites, I mean, you can't raise or lower them and change their trajectory. So eventually, a few of them are going to hit each other, and when two satellites hit, they create thousands upon thousands upon thousands of smaller pieces going in all different directions. And so there's this thing called the Kessler syndrome, which is basically what I think what happened in the movie Gravity, mm -hmm. where two satellites will hit and then it's sort of this chain reaction and they go off and hit something else and then they explode into four more and they hit something, you know, and it just keeps going until the whole Earth is surrounded by this debris cloud. But you don't really have to worry about that right now uh, because space is really large. There's a few bands, I think it's like 500 kilometers or something is like one of the concentrations, and then there's another band of, of concentrated debris. Um, but there's also a lot of open space. So yeah. it's, it's not a big danger, and they're trying to be more sustainable where they're trying to... I don't think they're official rules, but there's guidelines that every country is sort of abiding by where, okay, if we launch a satellite, we have to save enough fuel to either deorbit it or push it up into a higher orbit where it won't be in the way of, of everything that's in Leo right now. I see. Now, are a lot of these private companies making money at this stage? They're making money primarily through the government. So, so they're living off of subsidies? Essentially. So SpaceX right now, their biggest customer is NASA. Boeing, Boeing's different, and so is Lockheed Martin. 
their space sec- sectors, their biggest customers, NASA. But those companies are already well uh, established and diverse enough that they're making money even without that. But SpaceX, I mean, they're really good at playing the government contract game. So right now we pay them to launch cargo, and we're going to start paying them to launch crew in a few months. And that's, I mean, that's their bread and butter has been NASA. What NASA is trying to do is give them the opportunity and the ability to sort of wean themselves off of that and start going and chasing other markets. So there's a lot of, again, telecommunications uh, companies that are paying SpaceX. A lot of foreign countries will pay SpaceX to launch their payloads as well and their satellites. Yeah, that's, I wonder, NASA must love this because they're getting their job done for them. And they're probably getting it done at a cheaper rate because competition drives price lower. And subsidies mm-hmm. are necessary in order to start new economies to flourish. Yeah. You know, I had Steve Pakala on the podcast last week, and he is on a lot of different uh, different boards across the, the country and the world on climate change and carbon mitigation. And he talked about when he was on the show – how subsidies allowed wind and solar to become some of the cheapest forms of energy yeah. in the entire Especially world. Especially in Germany, they had heavy uh, government subsidies for that stuff. And that's what led to such the, such of a, a solar panel boom in Germany. Yeah, it's important to get these companies on their feet, to get them on their feet and to get them going so that you know they can begin yeah. to turn the profit. Because you have to have someone, if you don't do that, here's what you have to have. You have to have someone like Jeff Bezos who has the money to put forth this effort and be willing to lose year after year after year. But ordinary people can't lose year after year after year. You know, if, yeah. you, if you don't have $160 billion in the bank, you can't afford to be losing, you know, one or two billion a year. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the role of government is to start that. So companies, private companies would never have gone into space if, if governments hadn't done it first. You need governments to expend this capital in this thing that doesn't make money and it's just in the name of exploration and research and development and uh, and, and patriotism and pride. Who and that's the, how it started. Who was the pioneer of this? Who was the first private company who really you know started up? Was it SpaceX? Well, I mean... And I know there's always been private companies. Most famous, yeah, there's always been... So even in Apollo, I mean, NASA made barely anything by themselves. Everything was contracted out to, to all these different companies. Um, so is the difference now the, just marketing? That these private companies are able to to market themselves to the public. Well, the eye. difference the difference now is that they're building things on their own terms. So it used to be NASA said, "Hey, we need this, and we need it built exactly like this, and it needs to meet all these requirements." And hey, here's the blueprints. Build it exactly as I told you. Now, with these two um, vehicles that are coming online, Starliner and the Crew Dragon capsule, NASA says these are the requirements you have to meet, and you have to meet this safety standard. Go ahead and figure out how to build it. So it's a much more do it on your own terms. Just build it up to certain standards. Is it a race between what, these two? I mean, there's definitely competition. It's definitely a race. They both have the contract, though. So, I mean, they both are going to get money out of it. Mm-hmm. It's just which one is going to be the first private company to put human beings in orbit. And right now, SpaceX is on track to do that. I see. And we have – we not we as in Americans, but I think – is it China that's has a mission to the moon now? Yeah, I mean, they have a um, an unmanned mission. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to land a rover, I believe it is, on the far side of the moon. Um, and they're well on their way to doing that. Do you think this is going to spur a second space race, almost? 
to get men on um, the moon? But not between governments, but maybe between private companies? Between companies? I mean, SpaceX, again, would love that moniker, and they'd love first man on Mars or, or human on Mars. Um, oh, yeah, Elon, Elon Musk would be walking around. Yeah. I don't know if there will be another space race or so. I think government-wise it could if China wants to send human beings to the moon. I think it'll put a fire under NASA's ass and the government's ass to, to give them more money and more direction to yeah. do that. Oh, and if, right now if, it's if you right have Donald Trump in those, office. Well, yeah, I mean, actually, Mike Pence is the one who's really been pushing. But for, I mean, it's 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 a good. I'm saying it's a good thing if Donald Trump's in office because he's the type of person who was like, wait a minute, the Chinese aren't going to beat us yeah. there. Yeah. He'll you issue an executive order for four hundred billion dollars to NASA so we can get to the moon tomorrow. You know? Yeah. Instead of building the wall horizontally, he'll build it vertically, and we'll just climb up, <laughs> like a space elevator, sort of. Yeah, a space a space wall elevator. Yeah, I think one of the things we'll see in our lifetime, which I'm actually really excited about, is when we start to be able to reliably get rockets to space and land them safely, like SpaceX is doing. You know, and there's not that wasted material. Mm-hmm. One of the things we might see is is space tourism really take off. Oh, oh, we are definitely going to. This is a great time to bring this up. Today, I don't know if you saw Virgin Galactic uh, achieve space. So they're one of the, the first private companies to actually get to space. So they have this thing called Spaceship 2, and they have this big, uh, some uh, 747 or something, some cargo aircraft, and it carries this little small rocket sh- um, rocket plane to eight miles up in the air, and then it releases releases it. And this rocket plane is a rocket engine in the back, but it also has aerodynamic surfaces like wings to allow lift in the atmosphere. And so it fires its rocket for, I think, about two minutes or so, and it shoots up and gets to, like, 2,600 miles per hour, and it goes above the Earth's atmosphere and actually into space. So today it got to 82 kilometers above the Earth, um, which typically people think of the edge of space as 100 kilometers but it turns out, I believe the FAA and the Air Force uh, actually consider it to be 80 kilometers. So according to those those guidelines, they reached space. Not orbit, but space. And so when you do that, you get about two, three, four, five minutes of weightlessness where you're actually kind of just going with this big hop sort mm-hmm. of over the Earth. And then you'll come back down and land at a runway. And so they did that today. They're going to have a few more test flights with, with their pilots. And then their founder, Sir Richard Branson... Is going to be the first passenger, and then they'll have room for seven passengers per flight, $250,000 a flight, and I think they have something like 600 people already lined up who put money down to do it. So, yeah, space tourism is going to come in the next year or two, no doubt about it, because Blue Origin is getting really close as well. Do you know what the next good reality TV show is? Taking flat earthers to space. Oh, my. You know, and I had this thought today. I would love to take flat earthers to space. But it would really anger me that people who just flat out deny science get a free ride into space. Oh, bro. I'll, that I'll that be, I have a problem I'll with. I'll become a flat earther tomorrow. I don't care. Yeah, see, I don't I don't think we should – I mean, I think we should just approve them wrong and rub their nose in it. But, man, you know, if I if I believe in this and I work towards it every day of my life and I don't have $250,000 to blow, but some basketball star goes, I don't believe we're – I don't believe the earth is, is round and I don't believe we landed on the moon and – and then you take him to, to space for free? No, I don't, I don't agree with well, that. Well, he could probably just pay the 250 Gs anyway, right? I mean, That's I might pay so... that. 
I might pay that. So let's talk about some idiot who's just you know making conspiracy videos in their mother's basement. Yeah, I. But if do you, you don't, think... if you don't appreciate science and technology, then I don't think you should get to enjoy it. That's fair. You should, you should be. That's fair. Now that's going to be taken out of context. Do you think? Sure. No, it's fine. Who cares? You know, if <laughs> if people take stuff out of context, they suck. That's what I say. Yeah, they do. And that's those what people I shouldn't be. They shouldn't be allowed to have soundbite technology. Yeah, I'll mention this real quick. I'll double down. I'll mention this real quick, okay? This is taking some out of context. I posted on Twitter like three weeks ago. Whenever I get... Do you go to Starbucks? No. Okay. Well, I go to Starbucks like twice a week. Tuesday, Thursdays. Those are my Starbucks days. You use your reusable Starbucks? Nope, sure don't. Waste everything. Kill everything. Um, So I go to Starbucks... And their cups leak out of the seam. And they've leaked out of the seam for like three years. No matter what cup I get, no matter where I go, it always leaks out of the seam and it burns the shit on my hand. Always. Now it's fine. I've lived with it. It drips all over my shoes. It ruins my shoes. It ruins my pants, my my shirts, whatever. I suck it up because I like to drink Starbucks coffee. Now, I posted on Twitter that, you know, everywhere I walk, I leave a trail of hot java behind me. And my hands are burnt all the time because Starbucks coffee cups suck. So you know what happens? Starbucks contacts me personally and asks me and asks me what location I get my coffee at. Now, here's the problem. It doesn't matter where I get my coffee. Because if someone complains about burning their hand, I was making a joke. Send them back a list of every Starbucks location in the world. It's so weird to me that we live in a culture where they feel like, as a company, they have to worry about someone complaining about burning their hands on Twitter. What they should have done is reached out to me and said, hey, where do you get your uh, Starbucks coffee at? Because we just wanted to call the employees and tell them that if you walk in, that they should tell you that you absolutely suck as a human being. <laughs> that's what should no, have happened. No, I think, I think that's good. I think that's companies having a conscience and, and caring about their customers. But it's 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 so... All right. If I, if I said that... As I was walk, as every Starbucks I walk into, I slip and fall and hit my head on the cement. Maybe that's maybe you should reach out to me then. But if I say your coffee cup drips, come on, come on. But if that's if that's a problem that many consumers have, that's a small issue that they can fix, become fix better it. and more competitive. Not fixing it. Well, they didn't know it was a problem. Now that they know, they next did, time you they... get a Starbucks, it's going to be a totally redesigned cup. No, or maybe they'll just send you a reusable cup and be like, "Hey, idiot, use this." Yeah, but anyway, maybe that's why. That's why they leak, so it'll force it'll it'll encourage people oh, to use the reusable cup. That might be true. Well, guess what, Starbucks? It ain't working. I'll destroy the environment one cup at a time. I don't care. Just kidding. I do. I'm caught. But here's what I think. I swear, coffee tastes better out of cups that you throw away. I don't know what it is. I and I'm not even making a joke. I'm being serious. Coffee tastes better out of cups that you toss in the garbage. I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't understand the mechanism. Maybe they spray it with some chemicals that I drink. I don't know. But anyway, that the moral of the story is if anyone takes something you say out of context or gets mad at you because you say something and they interpret it a different way, those people don't matter. Those people suck. Have you ever heard a successful person make a complaint like that? I haven't. People who do stuff like that absolutely suck. One time when I was walking into McDonald's, I did you do you ever see Home Alone where Macaulay Culkin rips the necklace and the beads fall on the ground and then the bad guy robber slips and falls on his back and he jumps like eight feet in the air? 
Mm-hmm. Have you? This happened to me once outside of a McDonald's. I slipped on the ice. I fell on my back super hard, hit my head in the concrete, and there was an old woman walking out of the doors, and she had the audacity to laugh at me. And you know what I did? I got up, and I walked inside, and I got myself a goddamn shamrock shake, and I walked it off. <laughs> because that's what a real human does. Anyway, what, what, what were we talking about? You got me started. Uh, we're talking about Virgin Galactic and space tourism. Yeah, so do you think, I think in my lifetime, I will have the opportunity to go to space. I believe that. Um, I don't know if you'll have the funds, but you'll the opportunity will be open to you. I think the I think the price. The I think by the time we are eighty years old, the price of space I think flight, I think the price will fall quite a bit by then. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if it'll be like forty bucks. I don't. I don't know if it'll be plane ticket prices. No, 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 no. It'll it'll be. I I estimate maybe like two grand by the time we're yeah. old. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that would be a price to pay. I I would pay that. Oh my god, yeah. To see the curvature of the Earth, to look up and see the stars without any atmosphere in between you and all of those stars. Oh yeah. Oh my god, I how high do you have to be to see the curvature of the Earth? Do you know? Um I don't know the lower limit. I know that you could see it with that flight today, so that was eighty kilometers. So and I'm sure you could probably see it below that. I think um I think some fighter pilots can see the curvature of the earth. So maybe like sixty kilometers. Yeah, because I heard like a I was watching a, I was watching a lecture by Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he was talking about that Red Bull guy that jumped out of the. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? And he yeah, was. Yeah, I don't sa- remember his name, but. Yeah. And Neil deGrasse Tyson was saying that that at that height, and I didn't do the calculation myself. It's decent, decently easy calculation to do, but at that height, that you couldn't see the curvature of the Earth, and instead they used like a fisheye lens in order to make the video look cooler. Now I don't know how t- t- how high that guy was up, but yeah, I don't know. Let's, let's maybe we should up. check that out. Maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't know what the hell he's saying. I wouldn't go that far. I, I trust. I trust NGT. 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 No, I know. I was gonna say NG, and I realized it starts with a D. NGT. What's that like, called? Like Red Bull Strato Jump or yeah, something. Yeah, his name is like. Johan or so. I think a cool, he's got a cool name. I can't like, remember what yeah, it was. Yeah, it was like Johannes or something weird. Felix. Felix Baumgartner. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So he was 39 kilometers. So only, yeah. So so about half of that. So he probably couldn't see the curvature from there. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, commercial aircraft fly at 35,000 feet, I think. And I know that they can't see the curvature. Not yet. I think I've always heard, this is what I've always heard, that... If you if a commercial airliner were to go ten thousand feet higher, it could see the curvature. Hmm. So what would that be? If you take thirty five thousand feet, that's about seven miles, right? So I guess the cutoff would be about nine miles, which would mean that that Felix guy should have been able to see the curvature. So maybe that's wrong. Maybe I don't know. Well, what I'm maybe about. yeah, maybe maybe that's wrong. Yeah, but the point is, you have to go pretty high to see the curvature because the Earth is pretty large. For those of you who don't know that. But yeah, I think in our lifetime, we will see a time when you can buy a ticket to space. Oh, no Just doubt. like you could buy a cruise say, ship. I would say within the next five years, there will be a multitude of companies offering space tourism. Now, the question is, is it going to be what would be really cool? This would be amazing. Space hotels. They fly you to, low, to Leo. Yeah. So have you ever heard of... 
Have you ever heard of Bigelow Airspace? What is it? Bigelow no. Airspace. Oh, of course it's Bigelow. So, so they launched a, uh, and let's see, you can't call it inflatable, you have to call it an expandable module to the International Space Station, I don't know, four or five years ago? It's been out there for, for a while. Um, and it's essentially this thing, and it goes up in this sort of package thing, really, really small, and then it expands. It's essentially inflatable. Fun story, I learned that NASA doesn't like to call it inflatable because it could relate it to sex toys and sex dolls, so you, they're supposed to call it expandable. Huh? Yeah, I heard that from, from someone that works Who comes up with this stuff? All right, continue. Dude, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. But yeah, so essentially, and it's worked out fine. It's been great. They're starting to... Um, they're starting to certify it so that they can put more cargo in it and like some actual experiments or something, I think. Uh, so that looks like a viable option where they want to be able to yeah, do exactly what you said. They want to launch a hotel. So it's these really lightweight things, and there's not a whole lot. You know, It's basically like this steel or aluminum frame, and then it's this skin that's stretched over it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they want to launch you know, a bunch of different modules like that connected together so you could go up to space for like three or four days and have a little hotel get away for a weekend and then come back and Dude, that, that would, would be, be iss height that that's that's the move that's gotta happen that's got that so why as we expand humans expand into space as we do different things as we go to mars as we go back to the moon as we get into leo we're going to have to find a way to make it a viable source of income for companies doing it and government mm-hmm. subsidies aren't going to live forever, so you're eventually going to have to do something, whether it's mining asteroids, mining moon rock, yeah. whether it's you know commercial space flight, something. So you're those, going to have to those find are something. the three big ones. It is you know launching satellites and and helping with with data transfer, however you want to do it, whether it's telecommunications or whatever, uh, tourism, and then resources. I mean, resources is a huge one that we haven't really tapped into yet, although. Uh, again, recently on December 3rd, OSIRIS-REx, the asteroid return mission, um, reached Bennu, which is the asteroid that it's going to sample. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to bring a little, a small piece of that back, I think like 60 grams to like two kilograms somewhere in that range. And it's going to return that to earth. Um, they have one that I think is on the docket to be launched like 2022 or 2023. That's an asteroid return. And it's not going to launch, bring a whole asteroid back, but it's, from what I remember, it's going to go to a large asteroid and pick up a boulder and basically bring that boulder back with it and then release it so that it'll get captured by the moon's orbit. And so mm-hmm. at some point, astronauts could go out and, and uh, basically interact with it around the moon, which would be the first step towards bringing resources uh, towards Earth for us to be able to use there, which is what the Origin wants to do. Their whole motto is millions of people living and working in space. And Jeff Bezos wants to take all the harmful, like, strip mining and depletion of the earth's resources and move that stuff into space because it's essentially an unlimited resource oh yeah and that'll be two-day free moon rock shipping for sure i bet oh yeah oh prime moon rock shipping i'm all about yeah i'll sign up for amazon prime for some moon rocks that'll be cool i bet the people who own moon rocks right now or who have asteroids or meteorites right now are gonna be pissed the only ones who the only ones who own moon rocks are the government well that's why i said and meteorites or asteroids because it's illegal for a private citizen to own a moon rock because it belongs <laughs> to all of us. That's so an, a J, an intern at JSC in 2002 actually stole moon rocks and tried to sell them to a private seller and then got caught by the FBI and went to jail for a few years. Oh, boy. That's the yeah, move. There's a, there's a fictionalized account of it uh, you can look up. I think it's 
my boss was telling me what the documentary is called. It's called Sex on the Moon. And I think that's the more fictionalized one. But if you look it up and, you know, scroll past the first couple results, you'll get the actual story. Uh, he kind of screwed over one of the scientists. He threw away 30 years worth of worth of research and then claimed that he never saw the journals. So the guy's kind of a dick. Yeah, that's just not uh, some people, man. Some Moral people of the just, story, don't steal moon rocks. Yeah, don't steal moon rocks. And also probably realize that they don't really have any value. They're Well, people people want to own that stuff. I mean, they were going to sell it for, I forget how much it was. It was like $100,000 per gram or something like that. Something obnoxious. So they would have made millions of dollars. But it's also, I mean, it's like selling the Mona Lisa, you know? It's Dude, rich people will that. have rich people will pay for anything. <laughs> that's, anything. That's rich people will pay for anything. <laughs> but I'm excited. I'm excited for my like I yeah. I think about where I try to think about where science will be when I'm seventy, when I'm eighty. And yeah. I am convinced, based off of what I see right now, that not only will we have fully functioning space commerce but i think we might even be on mars manned missions to mars being completed i i think we will within our lifetime yeah i don't want to say for sure because we've been saying for sure for the past 60 years but i think i think within our lifetimes i would be amazed if we didn't have people on mars and i would be really saddened i'm just a big believer in capitalism and the way i don't think capitalism will get us to mars first I, I doubt that because so the way the way that I like to think about it and the way it's been explained to me is exploration is like this expanding bubble, this ever expanding bubble. And the very thin film on the edge is the government's because they have the ones to throw massive amounts of resources without expecting to get something back and they can really push the envelope and expand that bubble. And so within that bubble, that's when you have these private companies having um, commercialization of space in Leo. They're sort of filling in behind that and filling in the uh, the vacancy and the vacuum that these governments are leaving behind. So I really I really think governments will be the first one to get people to Mars. Until Jeff get Bezos them, get them to live there. Until Bezos comes along and he says, "Oh, you think you're the bubble? Check this out. I'm the bubble now. <laughs> I, I'm, the, I'm the bubble now. Because he could afford I to think... he could afford to fly himself there probably. Yeah. Okay. So maybe budget. I should rephrase that state, statement. The first humans that go to Mars and come back alive will be government astronauts. Yeah, I am. And I hope you're one of those people. You mentioned, uh, I don't I, know if I want to go to Mars. I, I mentioned this earlier, uh, or I didn't mention this. You mentioned the, the Kessler, uh, Kessler earlier. And that was Don Kessler that that was named after. Do you okay. know, do you know who he is? Uh, I don't, He's a he's someone who pioneered the study of of space debris. Hence why that what what'd you call it? The Kessler what? The Kessler syndrome. Yeah, Kessler it was named after him. His name's Don Kessler. And I tried to get him on the podcast. And he uh he's still alive. Yeah, he's a that'd, yeah, be cool, that'd be a cool podcast. He actually declined because he's retired and he wants to enjoy retirement. So oh. he's probably not alive much longer. Did you Just tell kidding. him this is like this is one hour out of his entire retirement? Yeah, he 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 just I don't know, he didn't want to. Uh, honestly, maybe the guy's the guy's done enough. Yeah, he, yeah, he has, and uh, he said that he would um, he listen to the show and he likes it and he'll listen. So maybe he's listening but right he, now. Is he a 
Patreon. Patron. He's not a patron. No, he should become one. Don Kessler, if you're listening right now, patreon.com slash the state of the universe. You know what to do. You could donate a dollar. <laughs> you could donate five, ten, twenty. Think about it. Even just donating two dollars starts this chain reaction that hits all these other people. I mean, they want to donate. That's true. That's valid. And you yeah. get cool benefits. You get cool benefits. So if you like benefits, Patreon.com. What, ben- what are those benefits? Oh, there's different benefits for different tiers. Depends how much money you want to give me. If you give me $1, I forget what you get. If you give, give me $5, you get different things. If you give me $10... You are not a salesman, my friend. <laughs> no, for real, though. If you, if you, if you give $1... <laughs> Uh, you will be able to see the upcoming list of guests in advance if you give $5. And you'll be able to ask them questions geared towards what it is that they study. If you give five, I don't, I just don't want to waste time, you know, talking about my Patreon account. But because I want to talk about Spaceflight instead, what are the, what are the missions going on right now or in the planning stages that you really look at as like pushing the frontiers? Oh, pushing the frontiers. That, um, so I'm not so much the science guy, and I think the frontiers is, is really the science that's happening. So things like Insight Lander, um, which we talked a little bit about in a previous episode, I think that's pushing the boundaries. The OSIRIS-REx mission, definitely. Um, there's one called Mars 2020, which is another geology-based Mars, but this one's a rover. Mm-hmm. So like Curiosity, it'll move around. Uh, and that one has an experiment where it's going to attempt to convert the Martian atmosphere into breathable oxygen, which is pretty cool and pretty important if we ever want to have a permanent uh, human presence. So there. is it going to take a capsule of the air and see if it can... I assume so. I don't I don't know much about it other than reading about it briefly. But I would assume it's going to take some of that atmosphere in and somehow do some chemistry magic and convert it to breathable oxygen. Um, there's, there's one happening right now. Actually, this is another really current one to talk about. Uh, the New Horizons probe, which in 2015 flew by Pluto and gave us those beautiful high-res images of Pluto like we've never seen it before. Mm-hmm. Um, that probe is now in its way to the Kuiper Belt, and it's going to do a flyby of a Kuiper Belt object in on July on January 1st, 2019. So and that was debated in right? like two weeks. That was debated yeah, whether or not we would do that. Yeah, but it ended up they had enough fuel and it was the right trajectory, and they could do it. And they said, you know. Before we just let it keep going out into nothingness, why don't we let get some uh, close-up images and, and study a Kuiper Belt object? And uh, if people don't know what a Kuiper Belt object is, do you want to talk about the Kuiper Belt? That's yeah, the Kuiper like Belt is essentially, thing. you know, Pluto actually got sort of decommissioned as a planet, if you will, because... <laughs> That's a wonderful way to put it. I like that. Yeah, and now there's a lot of things in the literature stating that Pluto should be a planet for various reasons. But one of the reasons Pluto got demoted is that we started, as our telescopes got better, and as our mechanisms for finding planets or objects in our solar system got better, we were able to find things further away, and we were able to get really good at doing it. So what we started to do is we find started to find a bunch of these objects out past Pluto. And what we noticed is some of them were very similar to Pluto. Maybe not as big, but comparable sizes. And then we had to come to some sort of conclusion. The conclusion that we came to was that we're not going to consider all of these other objects planets 
Therefore, we have to demote Pluto. Because we don't want a solar system where there's 40 planets. That's not fun. Eight planets is nice. 40 planets is too much. And so out in the Kuiper Belt... Imagine being in first grade having to make a diorama with 40 planets. Oh, that'd be the worst. Yeah. (laughs) So we came to the decision that we would decommission Pluto. And Pluto is very much like all of these other objects. There's a lot of icy objects that orbit the sun out past the orbit of Pluto. And the more and more we look, the more and more we find. And we call these things Kuiper Belt objects. They're essentially composed of mostly ice and some rock. And that's where things like comets come from. Comets come from the Kuiper Belt, and they they enter the solar system, and then they leave again and don't come back for a long time. And so... Well, the Kuiper Belt, is that that's technically in the solar system, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I say leave the solar system, I mean leave the eight major planets. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the solar system extends well beyond the Kuiper Belt, even. Into the Oort Cloud, which is... You know, a whole nother conundrum of stuff. Speaking of leaving the, the solar system, uh, Voyager 2. Was it Voyager 2, right? Yeah. That just left like two days ago, left the left solar system for interstellar space. Yeah, I got to ask you about that. How do we know? Yeah. How do we? Um, so I'm, and I don't know for certain, I'm going to give you my best guess. So the, the edge of the solar system is the edge of the heliopause, right? Uh-huh. So it's essentially where... The solar wind that the sun produces is evened out by the galactic wind, the right? The interstellar medium, maybe? Yeah, is the interstellar medium, where, where it kind of reaches a zero point. So the velocity of the solar wind becomes zero. We call that the edge of the solar system. Uh, so I'm guessing we have a pretty good model for how far away that is. Yeah. And we know exactly how fast Voyager 2 is traveling. There's no friction. It's just Newtonian physics. So I'm guessing we can predict with a certain degree of accuracy when it will be entering the heliopause and going through it and then coming that's what i thought that's exactly what i thought yeah Um, i I would assume that's how because i mean that was what like 1976 that launched so it's not like there's any you know uh high-tech transmitters or anything yeah i didn't know if there was a way for that thing to transmit back to us yeah so it it could there might be there might be a small thing like just sending radio beeps or something i don't know i don't know but my I would co- be surprised if after 40 years it's still working. Yeah, I was curious if, if it could have just smashed into a rock by now, and we don't know. Or if there's some have, way that we could have. Yeah. But space is, space is big. Space is very big, yeah. It's, uh, really, it's really incredibly hard to hit something in space. Yes. And this is something I think people who don't really study... I mean, this took me until probably like two years ago to really grasp. It's like, it is almost impossible to hit something in space. Once you are in space you're almost never going to hit something. Maybe in low Earth orbit because there's some debris. But once you're past that, I mean, you're home free, baby. There's there's nothing that's going to get in your way. Yeah, even if you, you know, people look at these pictures of galaxies and they see these hundreds of billions of stars. But the truth is that if you take two galaxies and you merge them, you will have very few collisions between stars. These two galaxies, they'll eventually settle onto, you know, a, a singular point because that's how gravity works. But as they're passing through each other, you you will have very little stellar collision because the stars are just separated by so much space that yeah. a collision is not Nate. And it's and it's not just two dimensional. It's not like a road. It's three dimensional. Yeah, exactly. Which I, I want to, which I think people also don't have a, a firm understanding of. I think that yeah. your microphone is like rubbing up against your shirt oh. real bad, and I can hear it sometimes. Yeah. It's like Sorry. fuzzy. So I don't know how you can mitigate that. It got, it got caught between my button. I'll hold it like this. Is that okay. help? Yeah, yeah. You, you had like a 
faint fuzz. I th- it won't be an issue, but I just wanted to point it out. So I think that our exploration of space is awesome. Why is there a hesitancy? Did you see recently the, the guy in China who used the tools of CRISPR to mm-hmm. create genetically yeah. engineered babies? Okay. This is very interesting because the majority of the world is nowhere near the stage of genetically engineering babies. Do you think it's going to take that sort of risk to get human spaceflight started again? Because Well, human spaceflight, that, first off, let me stop you. Human spaceflight has never stopped. Human spaceflight has been ongoing since... I should say 1960, outside of Low Earth, Leo. One or whenever it started. Uh, outside of Leo... Uh, no, I don't think, well... Do you think a government... It will take risk. Like a government's just going to have to say, all right, we're doing it. Yeah, and that's exactly what the United States government has done. We are going back to the moon. That's what we are doing. We're going to build a small space station with commercial and international partners in orbit around the moon. And we're going to send human beings there within the next 10 years. Hopefully by 2025, definitely by 2028. Um, and, and there's risk. There's no risk that... There's no event that spurred it other than Donald Trump, you know, so a little bit of history. Um, Bush wanted to go to the moon. Obama wanted to skip the moon and go to Mars. Now Trump wants us to go back to the moon. So we flip-flopped. So the event that changed it was one of the space policy directives that he issued back in 2016 or 2017. Um, But there's no, like, CRISPR-like event. But when you speak of risk, yeah, there's risk. I mean, space is hard, and space is inherently risky. Those are two things you'll hear repeated constantly if you spend any time um, around people who work in human spaceflight. Um, well, on, on our way to Mars and, and continuing human spaceflight, yeah, people will die. I mean, that's just you have to understand that, but it's it's a risky job. Man, the way you say that is like, people will die. It's just interesting. People pe- will die. There's a, lot of will. Pe- there's a lot of people who, when they hear you say that, they're like, wait a minute, people will die? Well, why don't we just stay right here? We're fine right here. Yeah. Well, it's not going to be a lot of people. I mean, in American spaceflight in 60 years, we've had, what, 17 people die? Uh, which is pretty impressive to think that, especially during the shuttle years, I mean, every every four months or so, we were strapping seven people to the top of a giant bomb and lighting the fuse and going, you know, we'll see in a few weeks. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the safety standards were like, billions of years behind what they are now they yeah before challenger in 87 86 84 i forget when challenger was yeah they were they were shockingly bad after challenger they got better uh, of course then we had columbia after columbia they got much better and it's something that you know so like in mission control they have the mission patches for apollo one and for columbia and for challenger and those are the three times we've lost human beings in, in, in America in pursuit of spaceflight. And it's constantly there as a constant reminder. Same within almost all the safety mission assurance offices. I mean, my office has, has a picture of Challenger on it and the, the three mission patches are in the conference room. Yeah, I mean, safety is number one goal, but you can only ever mitigate risk to a certain degree. I mean, if you can get something to be 99% safe, I mean, we're going to be doing more than 100 launches. There were 135 space shuttle launches. So even if you had 99% safety guarantee, you're still going to lose one crew or have something something bad happen. And that's just, I mean, that's the way it works. I mean, any job is dangerous. Spaceflight is 
as an astronaut, you're probably in no more danger than you are in getting hurt in a car accident driving to the space center or driving to the launch pad. I would be more afraid of that than strapping myself into a rocket. Yeah. There's well, risk and right. danger in everything. Yeah, statistically, I agree that you'd be more afraid, but in reality, you would not. You would definitely be more afraid to get in a rocket than you would to get in a car. Okay, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, because can you imagine? I want to get an astronaut on the show really bad. Yeah, and I'm I trying. Mean, there's there's a lot of them. I'm trying to find yeah. the right one to reach out to. Uh, you know, the right sort of like. Afterwards, I can I can give you some recommendations of people that might be might be a good fit. Yeah, I because I I really want to talk about this. I want to get someone who's been to space and and sort of yeah. you know talk about though. I'm so interested in the launch. They probably talk about it so often because everyone has to ask them like, "What's it like when you launch? What's it like when yeah. you launch?" Oh yeah, everyone asks that question. Yeah. But it's so but, I mean, fascinating. It's, it's interesting. It's cool. I yeah. get jolly when I take off in a plane. <laughs> like, I think it's really fun to take off in a plane. Yeah. I can only imagine what it's like to, you know, be... And these... Uh, when you're on the launch pad, you're you're laying, like... You're laying back, right? Mm-hmm. Like a vertical, like a vertical lift roller coaster, sort yeah, of. Yeah, you're facing directly up into the sky. Oh, that's got to be so terrifying. <laughs> like there's got to be an aspect of that that's just so like you have to think there's there's a part of it that's terror but you've practiced this so many times and you've been through so many sims i mean it's all it's all knee-jerk reactions your body knows what to do before you even really think about it i know so, but but you know even if, i don't know i agree with you there's there's a part of your brain that's still going oh my god i'm strapped to a you know a 50 ton bomb right now you know but but you also have to think about these guys of these men and women have practiced for two years to be at this point they they are totally prepared to handle any situation they have teams of ground controllers and flight controllers and safety engineers and, and everyone who's helped them to get to this point has worked to the best of their ability to make sure that this goes off smoothly and that they get back home safely to their families. yeah when i had dr dave fisher on the podcast he's you know he's one of the most knowledgeable people maybe ever in the history of human beings when it comes to space flight history he's he's an encyclopedia he's scary knowledgeable he's a space flight historian if there ever was one he knows everything yeah. and even to this day he records every launch he has every launch on video he has you know the the old classic tips he, he drives into his office at three in the morning to watch a chinese launch yes every single on chinese time. television yeah. i don't know how he gets it in, in williamsport pennsylvania i don't want to know i don't know but one of the things he was saying when i talked to him is he said one of the things that's really – and you mentioned this a little bit, but you didn't mention the implications. He said one of the things that really has held NASA back in terms of its scientific objectives is that every time we get a new president, it changes its goals. How do you combat that? You mentioned Bush wanted to go to the moon. Obama said skip the moon. Donald Trump yeah. wants to go to the moon. What if the so, next person in line says let's skip the moon? How do you yeah, combat I mean, this? I don't – as far as I know right now, I don't think anyone has a really good answer. I've heard different opinions. Some people say, okay, we have to pour all this money into a project and get it done in less than four years, which in aerospace is just really not feasible most of the time. I've heard other people argue that you need to take things one step at a time and have this long laid out plan um, so that even if there's deviations, you know, you can still come back to I think I think the best method is to do something – that has variability and change built into it, no matter the duration that you're planning on. 
Um, so like right now, SLS, which is the giant rocket that NASA's building, and the Orion capsule, that NASA, that's NASA's capsule that NASA astronauts will travel to the moon and beyond in and is being built by Lockheed Martin. Those are relics of the Constellation program, which Obama canceled, I believe, in like 2012 or something like that. Um, and so you can look at it and say, wow, we wasted all this time and effort working on this Constellation program. Or you can look at it and go, hey, you know, that didn't work out, but at least we salvaged these things. We can continue to use them in our new plan. I think that's the best way. Yeah, I mean, the obvious answer would be to have presidents that hired good science advisors and appointed good NASA administrators uh, that wouldn't, you know, completely turn the agency 180 degrees around just as they started to gain momentum. But, I mean, that's that's the nature of being a government agency and having to deal with that sort of stuff. Yeah, one of the things that I th- I used to think this would help. Now I'm not sure it would. What, one of the things that might help is to to have larger funding windows. You know, a funding window that doesn't renew every year, per se, but that renews every four years, six years, you know, something. Where you, you get you get essentially the same amount of money. You get whatever you get for a year multiplied by six or what, what have you. But that way you're able to set these large projects in stone and not have to worry about what the yeah, funding but setting, will be next year. Setting projects in stone, I mean, look at the James Webb Space Telescope. You know, that was supposed to cost a tenth of what it, it's costing right now. So even if you had set that in stone, you would still end up with something that didn't work and it's still essentially a waste of money yeah. until you get put more money into it. I'm glad you brought this up. I'm curious. I imagine the people at Goddard Space Flight Center working with the James Webb. Is that where it still is? Is it at Goddard? No, it was at Johnson for a while. I believe now it's somewhere in California. Okay, well, I'm sure the people working on the project hands-on are like, we have to continue with this. We have to see it out. We have to see it through. What's the general feeling about James Webb inside of NASA? <laughs> um, I've talked to a lot of people who are unsure about it. I mean, most people think, you know, at a certain point, they should just pull the plug and cut their losses and walk away um, because – the only option it leaves is we put like seven billion dollars or something in the stuff, like a ridiculous amount of money. That might be more than it is, but it's it's definitely in the billions. Uh, and it's like, I mean, you know how complicated the engineering is and the unfurling and unfolding procedure, and how long that'll take. And there's no way to go out and fix it like there was with Hubble. It's too far away. It just has to sit out there. And so if one little thing goes wrong, I mean, all of that money is down the tube. When if you had stopped it halfway. Yeah, all that money's definitely down the tube, but you still would have saved all this. I don't know. Maybe it'll go all right, and everything will be perfect, and we'll see further back into the history of the universe than we've ever seen before, and we'll wonder why we ever doubted it. But there's a lot of negative feelings um, that I've noticed with people who... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the implications are so bad both ways. It's bad if you, it's bad if you see it out and it doesn't work. Yeah. And that might be so that might have effects for the next you know 5 decades. I the mean with the amount years. of money that you've used to fund James Webb, you could have funded three or four other pretty big projects. Yeah. Yeah, but none of them will perform the way James Webb can perform if it works. You know? If it works. Yes. It's, it's the big, none yeah. of the proposed telescopes can work or you know, be as successful as James Webb will if it works. But that's a big if. A lot of people think that's a big if, and a lot of people think that's too big of an if. Yeah. 
I mean, it's always been a big if. It just became a bigger if the more money we poured into it. There's there's a funny thing, and I don't know all the details, so I won't go too in depth. But if you're interested, you can look it up. Where um, it's at the point where if they keep if they push it back pretty much any further, it won't be able to launch, or it'll be have to be recertified to launch in another rocket. Because I think right now it's scheduled to launch on, and I might be wrong. It's an Ariane five rocket, uh, which is like very well tested and very well proven. But I think that's ULA who supplies that is is looking. The company that provides it is looking to phase that rocket out in favor of something else by like 2022, and at this point, James Webb is pushed back to like 2021 or something. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's like pushing up against that window. Where if it goes any further, then they're like, "Oh crap, we have to certify this thing to launch on another rocket." And hey, we don't just have to certify; we have to make sure that it'll fit in the payload fairing of whatever rocket we choose, which is going, which is, and, and that rocket that's launching is a big rocket, so that will severely limit. Uh, their opportunities to find it. Like, it won't be able to launch on a Falcon 9, you know? Maybe a Falcon Heavy, I don't know. Yeah, I'll say this. From the, you know, community that I'm in, in the, you know, sort of more theoretical side of astrophysics, a lot of the observers I know, they're excited for James Webb, and they hope it works, but none of them are staking their research future on it. Yeah. None of them are like, you know, wait until we get James Webb. I'm going to be able to look at, you know, these certain different features. I'm going to win my Nobel Prize with all this research. Yes, no one's doing yeah. that because there is like a grow, and I've noticed it a change of mood over time. It's almost as if people thought, okay, if we can make this a five-year, pro- how long was it initially proposed for? Do you know? For development or for how long it was supposed to last? How long for development? I think, yeah, probably like, Five years or so. So a lot of people, when they, I mean, heard, the planning, the planning for this telescope started in the early two thousand. Like yeah. people were like working on beginning of this. Yep. <laughs> it's still going. And I, then you look at something like LIGO. You look at something like LIGO, and that almost gives you some motivation because LIGO yeah. took decades, decades. Yeah. It almost got shut down. It almost got decommissioned. And now but LIGO was built right here on Earth, where we could go and fix it and take care of it and help it along. That's true. That's true. But, you know, imagine if it got decommissioned. It'd be like building LIGO without stopping in one go. Yeah, well, we're going to... On its own. <laughs> we're going we're to do something like that with ELISA. Are you familiar with ELISA? I'm not. It's a gravitational wave detector that'll be in space. And it'll be these... Uh, I don't know much about it, but what I do know is you will have beams, just like LIGO has, these beams of light, but you'll have it in space and you'll have it far away from the Earth. And these be- these uh, beams, these devices that beam to one another will be separated by a large distance. So you will have an, essentially a noiseless system. One of the problems yeah. with LIGO, for those of you who don't know what LIGO is, it's a gravitational wave observatory. So it's literally, you know, and I've talked about this on the podcast a ton of times with a ton of different people, but LIGO detects changes, literally ripples in space-time that occur when massive objects merge or smash into one another like black holes or neutron stars and they emit this form of radiation called gravitational waves and these waves are literally ripples in the space that you and i occupy now the deflections in space are so small you know less than the width of a proton that you don't notice it you're not walking around and then all of a sudden you get really tiny and then all of a sudden you're not tiny anymore but we can detect it in the fact that the speed of light we can detect it as small deviations in the speed of light. And so 
This was something that was proposed decades ago in LIGO, and then they built these long beams where we can shine light over long distances, and if we get the light beam back, and I'm simplifying it, I'm sorry if you're a LIGO scientist, you're like, why this guy's an idiot? No. Um, We can shine beams of light, and we shine it down a long corridor, essentially, and we get it back, and we know that the speed of light is constant, so we know that let's say the beam should take one nanosecond to go to the end and back. Well, if we get the data back and we say, oh, wait a minute, this beam took went the distance quicker than we think it should, that means the space between us and the end of the beam must have shrunk. And we're really good at doing this. We can do it well. And LIGO is consistently getting better and consistently improving. And pretty soon we're going to have sensitivity so that we're able to detect you know, smaller and smaller systems, and we're really able to study things like neutron stars or black holes. Now, so what what causes a, a gravitational wave? What what causes a gravitational wave is when you have two objects, like neutron stars, say, these really dense stars, really incredibly dense. Some of the densest objects on the world, or in the earth, in the universe. There's no neutron stars in the world and on the Earth, but they are in the universe. Thank God. Yes, and. They are incredibly dense. If you want to learn more about them in particular, listen to the Duncan Lorimer episode. That's episode 15. Or the Maura McLaughlin episode, episode 16. But they're these incredibly dense objects, and when they rotate about one another, they are spinning so fast that they cause ripples in space-time itself. And those ripples are literally a product of having incredibly, incredibly fast-spinning massive objects. Because these objects are orbiting around one another, and as they orbit, the orbit decays. We say it decays, which means the orbit gets smaller. The objects get closer and closer together. Well, guess what? The universe has a a very fundamental feature. It conserves energy. So, as these objects get closer and closer together, you have to emit energy somehow. And the energy that is emitted is gravitational waves. You have gravitational radiation, as it's called. And it was predicted by Einstein some hundred years ago. And it wasn't proven. We didn't detect it until 2015. And now we're able to detect it reliably. And as we set up things like ELISA, well, it, we're going to be able to detect more and more of these objects. We're going to be able to detect supermassive black holes merging. You know, things like what you'd see in the center of a galaxy, per se. Two large black holes merging. And maybe... Maybe as we improve our sensitivities even more and we build more of these objects, we will, able to, we will be able to see the ripples from the formation of the universe itself. So it's incredibly exciting stuff. And ELISA, for those of you, that's E-L-I-S-A. It is a European collaboration, I believe. I don't think the United States is involved, which is why you wouldn't know about it, Nate. Um, and... It's exciting. It's exciting. And these detectors are going to be shot off into space and they're going to be separated by some crazy distance. I think, Nate, maybe you're looking it up right now. I can't see what you're doing. I only see a computer screen on your face. Yeah, I'm just I'm looking it up so I, I remember to look at this more after the podcast. Yeah, I want to read up about it. It's definitely interesting. And I, I had more McLaughlin on the, on the podcast and she... She is pioneering an effort to try to detect gravitational waves using pulsars. But the concepts are very similar. The concepts are almost identical, in fact. Now they will be susceptible to different strengths and stuff, but 
I hear the uh, I hear the noise again from your. It's microphone. not. It's not touching my shirt. Oh, maybe I'm crazy. Uh, but maybe crazy. But yeah, it's uh, you know these these crazy outlandish projects have historically worked out for us. How have can you think of any like large scale projects that we poured decades into that haven't worked? Decades? Um, I don't know about decades. There's, I mean, there's a lot of things that haven't worked. I mean, you can look up everything that we've sent to Mars that has crashed or or burnt up. There's a lot. Yeah, there's there's a ton. So there's risk. There's risk involved in in everything we do in space. And I think NASA actually does a good job at not publicizing their failures as much as they publicize their successes. Well, I don't know if I would agree with that. I think NASA does a good job of taking each one the same way. Um, so I think a good example is the most recent SpaceX uh, launch where they attempted to land their booster autonomously. I wanted to talk to you about um, this, yeah. Yeah, and so it actually it failed. So they have these these paddles. And I have I have the sheet with all these links. I don't know if you can like make that available to people, like a link to it so they can check this stuff out maybe. On I can, put any, cool I can put any links you want into the description. Yeah, that would be perfect. So there's a lot of cool videos of this. But they they're like these paddles that pop up when it comes when it's time for the first stage booster to to fall back to the ground, and they essentially help to stabilize the rocket. Well, one of them didn't come up, so they only had three, and this first stage booster started spinning around, uh, not end over end, but like what's what's a good way to represent that through words? Spinning like a top, I guess. Like a barrel? I don't know. Barrel rolling? Yeah. I guess I don't know, but it started spinning like that. <laughs> and uh, the rocket was smart enough to realize that this was happening, and it fired its thrusters. It has these engines, and you can move them around and fire them in different configurations so that you can affect which way the rocket is moving. So it was able to actually fire its engines in a way that slowed that rotation rate and actually stopped it, and um, it brought it down over the water. So when these uh, first-stage boosters come into land, they don't target straight for the launch pad. They actually target for just off the coast. Mm-hmm. So if anything goes wrong, then they just fall in the water. It's only once they get to a certain altitude and they've determined that everything is A-OK that they actually sort of pivot and go over to the launch pad. So this rocket realized right away that something was wrong. So it never made that maneuver to go to the launch pad. It stayed over the water. But if you watch it come down, it comes down and it stops spinning and it stands straight up and its little landing legs come out and it hovers right above the surface of the water and then slightly lowers itself down. And so if that was solid land, it would have stuck a perfect landing. Of course, it wasn't. It was water, and it fell down into the water and fell over. Um, I believe they were able to recover it, and they're at least studying it. I don't know if they'll refly it. But, I mean, it was it was incredible. And it's one of, those, uh, one of those failures that teach us a lot about, A, the system worked the way we wanted it to, and what else can we learn from this? You know, it was a successful failure. But... Um, I think to go back to go back to your original point, and this again ties into what we were talking earlier about commercial companies being better at marketing. You know, Elon posts this video and says this happened, but look at the way it happened and look at everything that went right. This is awesome. This is what we want to do. We want more of this. Whereas I think if NASA had had that happen, NASA wouldn't have posted a tweet like that. They would have said, "Failed landing. This is what went wrong. We are now working to try and fix this." You know, and they would have immediately launched an investigation. And published all the results of everything that went wrong, and what they're going to have to change, what they're going to have to do the next time. And people, while it is essentially at its core the same response, 
people will look at it differently. People will go, whoa, NASA has this whole report of everything that went wrong. This must have been terrible. They need to fix this. Whereas they see Elon Musk posting about it going, oh, no big deal. This was actually really cool, and here's why. And they go, oh, that's awesome. They can understand it, and they get behind it. So I, yeah. think, I think that's the big difference. I, I do disagree a tiny bit, though, because I do still think that NASA treats their tries, tries to hide their failures a little bit more. Because you say that they you know go through and publish this report and everything. But who reads the report? People who well, know the failure yeah. exists. People don't read the yeah. you know general public doesn't read the report. They don't. The sit general down. public doesn't read the report, but they know. I mean, if a space shuttle blows up, everybody knows it's on. Oh, if it blows the- up, they for sure know. Yeah. If, but if they lose, if they lose something on the launch pad, I mean, that's that makes the news. And that report's available to everyone. You know, the report of what happened in the SpaceX landing is not going to be available to the general public. So I think I think the big thing you're arguing about is is whether people care enough or are going to put the time and effort in to actually read it, which I don't care if they do or not. I think it's just important that they put it out there because it's a government agency. For SpaceX, they can do whatever the hell they want, but they're also allowed to spin it. NASA can't spin things. Mm-hmm. That's fair. That's fair. There was something else that I wanted to mention to you about the SpaceX launch. Oh, I wanted to ask you, when you're at uh, Johnson Space Center, what is the what happens to the employees when there's a launch taking place? Does everyone just sort of drop what they're doing and watch a TV screen? Uh, you don't drop it, but most people will put it on somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like we watched the Insight Lander uh, in my boss's office. Um, but you know that was a, that was a ten minute thing. We just sat there and watched it. But he had the coverage on all day on the TV in his office. So like anytime you walk by, you know you can see what's happening. Um, there was a Russian spacewalk maybe two days ago uh, that took place, and that took place from like 11 a.m. my time to like 5 p.m. And so again, my boss had it up on his television. You know, uh, we'd walk by and comment on it and talk about it. And then me and my coworker, you know, we have two computer screens. We each had it up on one screen. You know, and we you know constantly open it up and just check on what they're doing. And we'd have like the one earbud in just to listen to the, to the translator, what was happening. Um, we had people drop in, you know, um, upper management who would come by and like talk about it and tell us a little bit about what's going on, you know, just kind of shooting the breeze, but, but enlightening us. Um, so it's not like everyone just stops and watches what's happening. Um, but, but we do pay attention with a launch. It's definitely different because most people aren't there because they launch it like, I don't know, a ridiculous time in the morning when we're all asleep and no one's actually at work because it's in Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know like the launch that happened in December and the one that happened in October, that was while I was asleep. Like The one in October, I came in and I knew there had been a launch and I hadn't seen anything online, but I also didn't really chat. I just basically woke up and went to work. But in the elevator, someone was like, oh, it's going to be a long day. And someone else was like, oh, why? And they're like, Soyuz launch failed. And we're like, what? So like four or five people in the elevator, she was the only one who had heard about it because she was in flight ops mm-hmm. and she had like gotten a notification on her phone or something, you know. Yeah, I'm sure at Kennedy, the... it's probably different. If if they launch out of Kennedy, it'll probably be a different when they launch out of Kennedy. At Kennedy it'll be a different atmosphere, I'm sure. But I've never been there for a launch. I want to go I haven't been to a rocket launch in my life. Neither have I. I was I was gonna go watch the SpaceX demo one launch. Because it was supposed to be January seventh. And that was the first day of classes, and I was planning on taking a trip to Florida, and I was just going to stay a little bit later 
I watched that launch, but now it got pushed back to the 17th. So I'm not able to see that. Well, so here's the move. Sad. Let's let's pick a good launch if we can in the summer sometime. And let's do a launch podcast. That would be fun. That would Pod- be cool. Podcast on the beach or something or yeah. like, you know, near That the would beach be really cool. For the it's launch. just scheduling sucks. So we'd have to pick one that was a weekend. Um and the thing with planning them in advance is if it's like a cargo launch, then it's a lot easier. Like these launches will be tough. Like when they say in the summer they're going to do the first crude launch of SpaceX and Boeing, I'm sure it won't happen in the summer. I'm sure it'll be two months later than what they initially say. So it'll be tough to plan out in advance, you know, like, like especially for you to, to fly down and, and to do that. But we could do, we, I think we could much easier do a cargo, like a resupply mission, because those usually happen when they're supposed to. It's just weather that would, that would change that. Yeah, I just want to experience it. I want to see it. I want to like feel it. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I know. Me I too. Feel. I want to feel the, because you watch the videos and you can feel it. Yeah, you can. You, oh, you can just like feel. Like, it blows out the speakers. It's crazy, and they're miles away. You, you don't even have to have the sound on. You can just like something about watching the amount of energy that's being output. You can like. Yeah. You can feel. If I it. get a chance, if I get a chance, the next time, if if they ever plan to launch a Falcon Heavy again. When they launch the SLS for the first time, or when they launch a BFR for the first time, those are the three I would I would drop just about anything to go and see, just because they're huge and massive and historic. Like SLS will be the most powerful rocket since, well, it's definitely since Saturn V, and I think it might be more powerful than Saturn V. It's like NASA's next big thing. You know, regardless of your feelings on SLS, and mine are mixed, but man, just to see that thing launch. Oh. Why? Why is there mixed feelings about this? I, I I'm not sure. I have mixed feelings personally, and I don't know if many other people share this, and maybe I'm just uneducated. But I think that there's so many other launch providers. There's SpaceX, who has rockets. There's ULA, who builds rockets. Blue Origin is building rockets. Um, that I don't think NASA needs to build their own rockets, and not that they build. I mean, they contract it out. But I don't think NASA needs to be in that game anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole thing with SLS is it's the most powerful since the Saturn V. It'll be more powerful. It'll take people to Mars, to the moon, and to Mars and beyond, um, which is important. But I think SpaceX demonstrated in January that they can build a big, heavy launch rocket, the Falcon Heavy, which is powerful enough to get us to to the moon, um, and they can do it and launch it faster than than um, than NASA can conceive of. And build and launch the SLS, which has already been postponed, I don't know how many times, and has been in production forever, and has been conceived of probably years before the Falcon Heavy. And so, if Elon Musk has something like the BFR up and rolling in the amount of time that he says he wants to, or even close to it, I mean, NASA just can't match those those production and development times. And why don't you just pay Elon to, to use his rocket instead of building your own at that point? I think I think it's a wasted effort. I think they should. I think the writing's on the wall and they should look ahead a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I I think it's fascinating to see like I don't listen to myself talk about this sort of like about when I talk about astrophysics, I don't sit here and listen to I imagine I sound the same. I imagine I have the passion in my voice and like <laughs> all the accumulated knowledge just from, you know, immersing myself in the subject. But yeah. to hear like you talk about it, because 
The amount of knowledge you seem to have accrued in two years is impressive to me. <laughs> yeah, I really didn't know a lot of this in undergrad. I knew some of it, but like a very peripheral. Yeah, you've really submerged yourself in the culture, yeah. the NASA culture. What is it like? Have you been at Have you been at NASA while a fa- like a big failure or any failure has happened live? Well, not live. I mean, I, the Soyuz was interesting uh, when that failed in October. What's the atmosphere uh, I, like? The atmosphere. I mean, and I'm not in FOD, but I I am in safety, and that's flight operations uh, director. But I am in safety mission assurance, um, which was interesting because it was a safety thing. Now, it was a safety thing on the Russian end more than it was on our end, and our astronaut was fine, and the cosmonaut was fine. So it wasn't a, it wasn't like everyone's like, oh my god. But there were a lot of meetings. I know we had scheduled that day a lecture from Reed Wiseman, who was a, an active astronaut, and he, you know, he had to cancel because he had to fly to Russia. And, and be in all these meetings and all the astronauts, you know, had to go talk to people and, and figure things out. And there were all these safety briefings and things going on. Um, so, I mean, it was definitely active, an active environment with that happening. And then everyone was, you know, talking about it and going, oh, I wonder what this could be. You know, the, it was the talk of the town for sure. If it had been a NASA rocket, I think it would have been a much bigger deal or at least an American rocket. But the Russians are kind of secretive about their things and you know they're like oh this went wrong but we'll figure it out you know we'll let you know when we figure it out so i don't know it was it was interesting yeah i'm 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 curious as you continue to spend your career working in the aerospace industry i'm curious to see the at what the atmosphere is like after a big like what was the atmosphere like after the challenger disaster like what happened to the agency i know I know there's a lot of people, well, they stopped flying for, what, two and a half, three years? And same thing after Columbia. And I know a lot of people who were at, at JSC uh, when Columbia happened. And every time I hear someone talk about it or I read about it, and it's like, you know, you, you get to know these astronauts, you know. I mean, they're, they're around, and they're active, and they're, they're people, and they talk to you, you know. And so a lot of people, you know, talked about how you know, it didn't feel like losing a friend. They did lose a friend, you know. And they knew this person, they trained with them, they spoke with them regularly, they knew their family, you know, they had gone out to dinner together, to a baseball game, you know, and suddenly you just took away seven of those people, and you had to deal with, you know, why this happened and how this happened. Um, and it was, it, it sounds like it was a very somber atmosphere, and people were, you know, pretty, pretty broken up by it. But at the same time, I think they were also galvanized to make sure things like that don't happen again, and they they correct, you know, whatever the problem was. Yeah, you made me think about something there that I actually realized I wasn't thinking about. I was thinking about how the people reacted to knowing that NASA has failed at something and they're NASA employees and they have to sort of internalize this failure. What I wasn't thinking about is the people. Yeah. You made me think about the people and how, you you know, imagine showing up, for anyone listening, I don't know what field you 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 work in i don't know you know where you work i don't know what country you're in but imagine showing up to work one day and you know eight people are dead eight of your coworkers are dead imagine that that's got a man i almost feel bad for even bringing it up now cuz i didn't even think yeah. about that and they're like and they're celebrated you know you're they're your celebrated coworkers they're the ones that the whole reason you're there is to get them into space 
every person that works there, you know, from the custodian to the lunch lady to the engineer to, to the senior management, they are there to support human spaceflight and to get those people there safely and bring them back to their family. And so it's not that NASA failed. It's, I mean, they failed, you know, like, and they, they feel that internally. Like, we messed up something. You know, we didn't check all the boxes. We should have. We got lazy. We got sloppy. I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there for it. I, I feel like that's what the atmosphere is like. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But that, that's the picture I sort of get. But at the same time, they felt like, you know, this is, this is a push and a wake-up call that we can and will do better. Yeah, there's almost no industry like the spaceflight industry in that regard. There's very few industries where you can lose, you know, your workforce because they're doing their job. There's yeah. very few industries, you know, it's like, man, it is. I think, and maybe just I spent too much time in Houston and in Texas, but I think oil and gas is a, is actually a good analog, at least for people working on the rigs, because, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you can be doing your job and you can be doing it, you know, 99.9% perfectly and you get one of those bad days where you know things start cascading and going wrong, and next thing you know, you know, I don't know a couple of people are dead on your rig and it's in flames, and there's helicopters and boats taking you out. Yeah, what's the future of the ISS? Are they shutting that down? Future. Uh, so yeah, they talked about that a lot. So they they're funding it through 2024. Um, they're hoping to be able to fund it through 2028. Right now, they're just trying to certify it. So mm-hmm. once it's certified that all the components will last until 2028 within a certain you know risk tolerance or whatever, then I think the funding will be pretty easy. And I've heard a few flight directors say that they're confident that it will probably be funded beyond that to 2032 or so, uh, certified and then funded. Um, but I mean, it's old. you know. It's been up there. We started building it in 1998. So it's 20 years that we've been building it. We've had people living in it continuously for over 18 years. Um, you know, I mean, think about your house. You own a house for 20 years. You've got to fix a lot of things. And we do that now with EVAs. The problem is a lot of things that they first sent up with the ISS, they're like, oh, these are perfect components and it won't be around long enough. And they weren't designed to be able to be fixed at all, let alone in space with big bulky gloves and, and specialized equipment. Uh, so, yeah, it's just it's that sort of struggle is, is making sure that we can fix whatever's going to go wrong with it and that if something goes wrong with it, it's within the tolerance that we would ex- uh, accept. But I think it would be around. I think it'll be around for for a while longer. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say goodbye to it anytime soon. It's. A, can you tell people what I realized? We didn't even. I just said the ISS. I didn't tell people what it was. The ISS is the International Space Station. Uh, it's a multi-billion-dollar project that is currently circling the Earth at around 250 miles above the Earth. Uh, it's about the length of a football field. And it's got the internal volume of, I think, like a seven-room house. So it's a, it's a pretty big place. They have full, it has six people on it. And when it's empty, it has three people. Uh, but it's never completely empty. Yeah. People there. Is, the, is there an industry starting to get global internet in the satellite industry that you see? Yeah, uh, like CubeSats. Are you, so I know Elon wants to launch... A constellation. So CubeSats, for people who don't know, are these small cube satellites. Um, and so they have 1U and 2U and 3U. And so 1U is like the base size, which is 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. Um, and so you can use these things to... Um, you can send up a whole bunch of them fairly cheaply. 
and spread them out over an area and allow them to communicate with each other and communicate with the earth. And so I think Elon Musk wants to do this to give broadband internet or high-speed internet to Africa, I think is, is his thing that he's pushing for with that. And hopefully central Pennsylvania uh, but, too, because they need it. <laughs> yeah, they do. They really do. I'm, I'm going home in about a week, and I'm not looking forward to the internet access. That's just going to drive me insane. Oh, yeah. You can get better internet in South Sudan than you can in central Pennsylvania. I guarantee it. Oh, probably could. I guarantee but, it. Um, <laughs> CubeSats are also used uh, for a lot of scientific purposes because it's it's a cheaper alternative, and it's really small. It's really easy. You can package it in there, um, and then you can, you know, if it's on the ISS, they can put it outside the ISS in, in this little rack. And then bring it back in after six months and send it back to you. Um, a lot of universities and scientific researchers use that. Rice University is actually starting to build our own CubeSat. Um, this is a public plug, plug for SEDS, the Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. We have a club started. We're, we're going to build a CubeSat and do that. Um, yeah, the two CubeSats went with uh, the Insight Lander to Mars. And that was sort of the first test of CubeSats in deep space. And that was basically just to uh, relay information from the, uh, the the lander and the satellite. I mean, at that point, I guess it's technically a satellite, but the lander um, so that it doesn't have to carry this big transmission thing on it. And it can just transmit to the CubeSats and the CubeSats relay that data back to the Earth. Uh, and that turned out to be a, a rousing success. So it looks like that's something that we'll be doing on more uh, future flights. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm not in this field, you know. I'm in the theoretical astrophysics field, and a lot, a lot of people could care less if you go to the moon. But man, there's so much opportunity here. There's so much yeah. opportunity here for the human race to to expand. Yeah. Because I imagine now I'm no aerospace expert, but I imagine that space flight will become exponential in the sense that it's going to be hard to take the first few steps. But once we get those steps ironed out, once we get reliable trips to the moon, once we get reliable trips to Mars, I think you'll see aerospace in the, in the solar system really begin to open up. And true exploration to take hold. And maybe not in our lifetime, but we, we will take the foundational steps in our lifetime, I think. Yeah. I, uh, I only hope that this isn't another sort of false start. So it seems to me we've had, we've had two periods. We had Apollo where we were launching Saturn Vs every three or four months. And I mean, those, those big behemoths, you know, for, for four years, we were launching them constantly. But we had all this money and all this momentum, and then it just dried up like that and just stopped. Um, so then we get the shuttle, and the shuttle's a bit cheaper to launch, somewhat reusable. And for 20, for 30, for 30 years, we launched a shuttle every, you know, two or three shuttle missions a year, excluding the years after Columbia and Challenger. But then again in 2011, it just stops. Uh, and it dries up, and, and NASA doesn't have a direction to go. So I'm hoping that this time, you know, I mean, SpaceX launched 16 resupply missions just to the ISS. That's not counting, uh, you know, all the other things they've launched, and uh, or it's their 16th resupply mission. But I think they launched 16 missions this year uh, in total. 
along with ULA missions and all these other companies are getting involved. And so I'm hoping that by bringing the private sector more into the game, that we, we ha- keep that momentum going and we don't hit a period in five or ten years where everything stops again for another 15. I hope, I hope this is now a continuous growth instead of spurts and, and stops. Yeah, I don't think you'll see that. I don't think you will because I think that companies are starting to realize the profitability that exists here once we establish bases. If we can establish reliable travel throughout our our little neighborhood in the solar system, there's a lot of opportunity for economic growth. There really is. We talked about it earlier, whether it be tourism, whether it be, you know, mining different bodies, you know, if, if you could find a reliable way to get to the asteroid belt, the first person that yeah. does that is going to be the next Jeff Bezos of this The of first this person world. That, that brings a, a, an asteroid full of rare Earth elements into orbit around the moon or into cislunar orbit and is able to bring those elements down to Earth, mine it and bring them down to Earth. I mean, that's going to be probably the world's first trillionaire. I mean, it's un- literally untold riches are out there. Yeah. It's, man, I, I, I'm excited. I'm excited about what is going to happen in my lifetime. I'm excited to see Same. it. I, I, look, I think often back on my grandparents' lifetime, and they lived from you know, the mid-1920s until like the 2010s or so. And I mean, man, like, you know, they grew up, you know, and the de- they were born into the Depression. They grew up poor, you know, electricity was there, but it wasn't really where they were. You know, they didn't really have cars. And when they went to a one-room schoolhouse and they left school at eighth grade, you know, to go and, and work on the farm or whatever. You know, my grandfather went to World War II. And then, like, man, in their lifetime, you know, they had color TV come out, you know, and, and start to proliferate. And then things started to miniaturize, and, and cars, you know, became cars as we know them today. Um, you had the first satellite, you know, you have the internet, you have cell phones, you have all these things that just sort of exploded. I mean, the world that they were born into was almost a hundred percent different from the world that they that they left, you know. And you, know, you look at those charts, and everything seems to be an exponential change, and it's still going that way. I mean, I, I don't. I don't even think we can really accurately think of what we'll have when we're eighty years old. Yeah. How long does is how long can a human live? Let's say a hundred years, right? A human can live a hundred years. That's not the average lifetime, but they can. Think about where we were at one human lifetime ago, like you were just mentioning. You know. Yeah. Then think about where we were two human lifetimes ago. And guess what? A hundred years ago, we were we were in the middle of an influenza epidemic. Epidemic, you know, World War One. Oh yeah, hundred years before that, there's people I commemorating mean, that breakout by not taking vaccines today. And props yeah. to them. Yeah, yeah. Really thrown oh, it back. Really, really, man. That's that's a heck of a throwback Thursday. <laughs> what, what, what was going on in 1818? No one knows. The, the White House had gotten burned down a few years earlier by the British. You know, our country was like 30 or 40 years old. <laughs> yeah. And four human lifetimes ago, we were signing the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. That's insanity. And and what, 
eight human lifetimes ago, Galileo was doing his thing and and getting yelled at by the church and, and being put on house arrest for oh yeah for saying this is the center of the universe. And twenty human lifetimes ago, Jesus was dying or maybe being born. I don't know. One of probably both. <laughs> I mean, he didn't live very long. Yeah, he was only like forty years old, right? You know, so I mean, shit happens quick. It really does. And technology is exponential. You're seeing it now with AI, with artificial intelligence. Once oh, you get... I just started reading the, the James Barrett book that you had on the podcast. Yeah. Um, dude, that book is a little terrifying. It'll scare I, I can only read so far, and then, I, and then I'm like, okay, I need to like cheer myself up and go watch some cat videos or something. Yeah, it's definitely terrifying. I'm going to try to get someone, someone else. James Barrett was on the podcast. He didn't want to – you know, he only wanted to do 40 minutes. And yeah. that's fine. You know, no one's obligated to do this and let alone do it for, you know, an hour or two or whatever. But I would like to get someone else who's really knowledgeable in, a in AI and in AGI and really – and that's artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence for those of you listening. And really, you know, hone in on those subjects because that is going to become some of the most important things in our lifetime. Yeah, I used to think climate change was the biggest issue we were facing, but I, I don't know. I, I think I might think it's AI now. I'm, I'm on the fence about which one I think is more important. Yeah, man, it doesn't I think matter. AI might be more pressing. Think about think about robots. Do robots care about climate change? Not one bit. No, they don't care. They don't care. It's not going to affect them. It's interesting, man. It's very interesting. We live in the most interesting time in history right now. Yeah, I would agree with that. People will look back I'm, on I'm this. glad to be alive right now. This is the I've best this time. This is the best time to be alive. For anyone listening, this is the absolute best time. Nostalgia will trick you into thinking it was better when you were 20 and Bruce Springsteen was still hot and he was playing in New Jersey. Hey, Bruce Springsteen still looks good. That, that man has aged well. That's true. He's not bad. but And his songs are still absolute <laughs> jams. <laughs> but man i'm just this is the best time this is the best time i think about this all the time i can i can pick up my phone and i can uh sign into it with my fingerprint and i can check my bank account with my fingerprint and i can you know pay credit cards with you know my my fingerprint it's just and i can do it all in two two clicks the way that technology exponentially grows is insane. You know, we have Alexa in our house now. I don't have an Alexa. Uh, Amazon Echo, I think it's called, or Echo Dot. But yeah. I really want to get one. I saw, like, I always think about, like, wow, the things you could do with that. You know, like, you could say, hey, Alexa, set a timer for 20 minutes if you're cooking dinner. Yeah. And Alexa... No, it's really cool. We have a We have a Google Home Mini, and it's... We used to have it in the main room. Now we took it out. Um, but it was it was really fun to use for that sort of stuff. And I had a program, so like I'd say good morning, and then it would tell me the weather, and then it would just start playing. Like I have this like morning wake up playlist, and it would just start playing that. Like it was really cool, dude. That's the that's it. That's the future. Yeah, that really is. Well, it's not even the future. It's now. It's, it's now. It's the now. It's now. <laughs> I say it's the future because that stuff's still kind of expensive out of my price range. I have to wait for it to go down a little. 
The Google Home Mini is really cheap. It's like if you get it on sale, it's like thirty bucks or something. Yeah, like a, a you know an Amazon Echo Dot's only like thirty bucks too. So yeah. it's 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 incredible. The problem is they're stealing all your information. You know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. If they're not gonna steal it, someone else is. You yeah. Know? I've signed. I've signed too many acceptance. I've clicked too many acceptance buttons without reading the terms and conditions at this oh. point. That I, I probably, never. I've probably legally owned by someone else at this point. Oh, I'm probably for sure. not even in charge of them. I don't know. So, yeah, uh, I, whatever. I refuse to read a term and condition. <laughs> I refuse. I don't care if it says you're gonna. There's gonna be someone in, on the way to your house right now to murder you. I'll sign that shit. <laughs> Just let me log in. That's all I want to do. Yeah, I'll sign it right away. And it's funny when they update the terms and conditions. It's fun. You yeah, know they send you a notification. You know they're pushing some bullshit too because Apple will, you know, send you a like when you sign in your iPhone it'll be like we need you to accept the terms and conditions to use Apple products. And you know they're adding some clause where it's like yeah. your personal information is being sold for $10 per yeah. page. $10 per page for your personal information. And you're just like accept. Take it. No, you don't even – you go, oh my gosh, this thing again, and then you quickly hit the accept button as fast as you can to make it go away and then never think about it again. Yep. So I am owned. It, it's fine. The NSA has everything anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And at this point, Russia probably does and probably China too. India is probably well on their way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Whatever. Saudi Arabia owns me because I, I put gas in my car. That's uh, true, yeah. Yep. You're, uh, the UK owns me because I love fish and chips. Um, what else? South American countries that make all that coffee and, and cocoa beans. That's I true. eat a lot of chocolate. Those countries <sighs> I mean. I love a good chocolate bar. Mm-hmm. All right, I gotta go eat I got chocolate. some M&M's in the kitchen. I'm gonna go eat some of those. Yeah, we gotta cut this. We gotta cut this out. Thanks for being on. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I, it's such a fascinating time to be involved in this sort of thing that you're involved in. And to talk to you about it, I can feel like I can feel the excitement f- from you. I can feel it, and it just yeah. gets me excited about what's to come in this Good, in, the, in the world of aerospace. I want to I want to get people excited. About, I want to get people to know about the stuff, and then I want to get them excited about it and, and think of them it's cool and interesting. Yeah. So if anyone's listening, um, I'll have Brendan put some some interesting links to videos and, and some cool stuff in the, the descriptions if if uh, you want to take a look at that stuff. There you go, folks. There you have it. Thank you to Nate for being here. Thank you to you for listening. I love you. You're great.
Thank you.